My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. My guest today on Pros and Content is a really wise marketer who really impressed me in this conversation. He is recognized as a global strategic retail and brand marketing expert. His name is Doug Zarkin, and he has led the transformation of Pearl Vision's global strategic marketing, um, e-commerce, visual merchandising, product promotion, and store design. Pearl Vision is a massive American chain of eye care stores, and it's part of a larger company called Luxottica, which is originally Italian, and it's actually the largest eyewear company in the world. The story was really interesting that he shared with us. Not only did I go into the conversation having already cried at some of the content that Doug had put out there, but he shared the story of what it took to really create that type of content, of how he managed the expectations of all the different leaders around him, of the franchisees of Luxottica and Pearl Vision to achieve that really big brand rebuild. We talked a little bit about retail and the disruption that that category is facing, and we talked about the role of direct-to-consumer marketing and performance marketing in particular and how it should best be balanced with brand marketing, which, as you guys know, we always talk about. This is my conversation with Doug Zarkin, Pearl Vision CMO and Luxottica VP. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Bros and Content. Um, I have a really special guest here with me today. Um, this guest has managed to create a content series that has actually made me cry a couple of times, um, but at the same time also happens to be a leader in an industry that is experiencing a ton of disruption. So I'm very excited to jump into this conversation with Doug Zarkin. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start high level. I wanted to hear your thoughts as a leader in this space. You've been with uh, Luxottica and Pearl Vision for about seven years, right? Seven and a half years. Seven and a half. But you've you've held many different roles within this kind of retail and apparel industry. Tell us a little bit about where is this industry headed? Where does it come from? And what are the big disruptors? So it's interesting. Um, when people talk about retail, the, the conversation immediately dovetails to the Amazon impact. You know, Amazon has killed retail. Brick and mortar doesn't have a future. And the reality is Amazon has not killed retail. Amazon has killed shitty retail. They have weeded out the herd. You know, five, maybe even 10 years ago, anybody can open up a small boutique in any town and probably make a decent living. What Amazon has really done is forced brands to think about purpose and experience. Hmm. Opening up a brick and mortar destination has to have meaningful difference embedded in its ethos and its reason for being, or else it's going to fail. When I look at the retail industry, what I am seeing is a couple of things. First, what I am seeing are brands have really recognized that the experience is what makes them successful. It's not the products they sell. Frankly, what Amazon does is they can sell everything. And so unless you are Apple, where you have a unique product, or you are like a Tesla, where you're not distributing it anywhere else. The bottom line is it's not the products that make you difference. It's the experience selling the product. So I think there's a heavy investment there. Second big thing that I'm seeing is sort of a, a return to what I call the bespoke model of retail. You know, it used to be getting in, getting out, 
not really worrying about customer service, self-navigation, um, huge assortment. It was all about choices and options. What I have seen, and I think one of the reasons that ProVision has been successful in, in what has rapidly become a commoditized category, which is optical retail, is because we focus not just on the what, but more importantly on the how. Customers want a, a curated experience. They want to be guided from the time they walk in the door to the time that they leave through their purchase experience. And that doesn't mean hard selling. What that means is actually having somebody who's willing to listen. You know, Because there are so many choices and options, for the average consumer, it's overload. You know, When you have something that has seven or eight different variations, what do you choose? And I think if you look at the automotive industry, interesting, it used to be, I can design the car to be perfect exactly what I want. Now it's good, better, best. And the reason is because the consumer doesn't know what they don't know. And I think in retail, there's a bit of that scale back of it's not about having 19 different variations. It's about having a few, but really investing in helping to educate the consumer so they can make an informed choice. How informed of a choice do you think this is? How considered of a purchase is it? Because you've compared it to, to you know, auto to some extent. Do you think it's similar? Um, I think optical uh, is one of those categories that is misunderstood in terms of the severity and significance of what you're actually buying. Mm. Um, glasses are a medical device, first and foremost. They're beautiful and fun, and the fashion side of it creates an unbelievable emotional experience where people can really celebrate their perfect pair. But the reality is, is you're wearing a medical device on your face. And so with that comes the question of, is it about the cheapest or is it about the best? You know, if, if you believe that shopping for a medical device should be about the lowest cost provider, good luck, there are plenty of partners. But if you recognize that it's about seeing clearly, that in our, our category, a millimeter, that's pretty small, a millimeter of fit is the difference between seeing clearly and having a massive headache, you're not going to go to the cheapest, you're going to go to the best. And so that's where really we have been able to excel in driving quality of care perception and reminding consumers that they have to take this seriously to then have so much fun finding that perfect pair or multiple pairs. And from a fashion perspective, you now don't have to sacrifice fashion for function. Every major brand has an eyewear line um, and the colors, the shapes, the assortments, they're just wonderful. So we talked a little bit about Amazon as a disruptor. What about some of the startups that obviously we all know have come into the space? Um, one of them's Warby, but but how, how do you think about the D2C movement? So, um, you know, I love the fact that attention is ramping up in our category to the to the excitement side of it. That in Europe, for example, if you were to, you know, I'm going to go retro, open up the pages of what magazines still exist in Europe. Every third page, you'll see a model wearing a pair of glasses. You won't see that in the U.S. So eyewear as a fashion accessory is not really in the norm yet. It's starting to, you know, you're starting to see celebrities wear glasses without apologizing for it. Um, but the reality is, is that it is a medical device. So if you believe that the care and seeing clearly is worth $39, there are options. If you believe that you want to get your glasses at the same place you buy your groceries, there are options for you. But if it's me and I take my vision seriously, I want to go to a place that not only has experts that are expertly trained, but also can help me find that perfect pair. And oh, by the way, if this is something I'm wearing on my face every single day, it's like wearing, buying a pair of shoes or carrying a pocketbook, you know, or for a man wearing a watch, perhaps. 
I'm not going to buy just something function. I want to buy something that represents who I am personality-wise. And that's where brands like ours can really excel because we offer such a breadth of assortment um, that can really help guide that person into finding that perfect pair that makes them feel good, look good, and that their eyes are now healthy. Got it. Thank you. Talking a little bit about the the kind of D2C performance mm-hmm. marketing movement, this is a question that I tend to ask that I hate and most of my interviewees hate, but I feel like I have to ask it Go so that it. we jump into a, a marketing conversation. There's a lot of debate, and I would say in particular in the retail space, um, and a sense of kind of disjointed attention from marketers between performance and brand. Right. You mentioned that um, one of the big disruptions and kind of effects of Amazon coming into the space is that they've placed a focus on brand, um, and those smart enough to see it have embraced it, and you you being one of them. How do you think about the performance side of it, and, and how do you think about the startups that have really kind of embraced the performance piece of it? So marketing is not about pretty pictures. It's not about winning awards. I mean, we're thrilled when we do. Um, it is about motivating a consumer to take action by clearly putting your brand on their brain, establishing your meaningful reason for being in their mind so that when it comes time for them to activate, the decision is clear for them. You know, marketing starts by understanding that consumers make emotional decisions before they make rational choices. And so for somebody who's getting into the eyewear category, which at best, if you're lucky, it's every year. They have to make a decision on who they're going to trust. And that's where marketing comes in. Performance marketing is an essential part because it allows you to balance out your need to storytell, the emotional side, with driving the results. Because in, in our business model in particular, marketing's job is to drive the profitability of each and every one of our locations. So we're a franchise-driven business. 80% of our locations are owned by doctors and optometrists and other franchisees. My job is to fill their book with patience. And so that's where performance marketing comes in, but it's a healthy balance. It's like science without art, art without science. Performance marketing has to complement establishing credibility for your brand. Performance marketing doesn't establish credibility for your brand. It drives results. So you need that upper funnel. Why am I here? Why should I even care about you? So that when I'm searching on Google and I see you're on page one, it matters. Do you find that when business is good, Brand marketing is easier to talk about, and when business isn't good, everyone just tries to jump into performance mode. Um, I, I think when business is good, marketing gets some of the credit. But truthfully, you know, we have an amazing operations team, and what happens within the four walls is not marketing. That's really operations. And so I give a huge amount of credit to our partners in ops and ops services for helping take the positioning of the brand and bringing it to life through flawless execution. When business is good, everybody is good, okay? And I think there is more of an appetite to try different things. Of course, yeah. When business is bad, it's not necessarily that it's marketing's fault, but you do start to lean a little harder into the performance matrix. And again, you can't drive meaningful results if your brand doesn't mean anything. And so dialing up performance-driven marketing, you're not going to get meaningful results if you haven't complemented that with reinforcement as to why your brand is different why your brand is better, why your brand is the right choice. So you've got to kind of do both simultaneously. I would say we probably spend a little bit more attention on the performance stuff and push a little harder for understanding how come, um, not why, but how come, than we do in business is great. 
But even when business is great, it's how come business is great? How can we add more money to it? So what do you say to some of the you know retailers out there that are experiencing a ton of disruption and um, they're they're kind of turning to marketing and saying, fix it now? Mm. How, how do you how do you act as a CMO of one of these big retailers? Do you turn around to the CEO and say, give me a year, I'm going to go do a brand campaign and try to save um, you know, the influence that, that uh, Amazon has brought upon us? Or, or what do you do? Do you quit your job? Um, no. I do quit <laughs> your job. I, you hide under your desk and cry. No, <laughs> I, I think, first of all, it doesn't take a year. At minimum, I think it takes two because in our business, in any retail business, it's about comp sales. So if you're going to take a step backwards in terms of reducing promotion or changing your communication, there's going to be an impact. Hopefully that impact isn't too significant negative, but there's a chance it might be. You know, at Pearl Vision, when we started to scale back promotion, we started to see a drop in in our multiple sales. Mm, but we were more profitable because we were reducing discount levels. So right. it's reminding ourselves that you can actually make more money sometimes by selling less product. That's not at all what 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 why we operate our business, but the reality is is that carefully managing discount levels is an easy way to get through the hard times on um, adjusting a strategy to be a little less promotional. The reality is, is that marketing does not control the inside of the four-walled experience. Customer experience is really a shared responsibility that involves having the right product on the floor, having the right consumer, ed- the right associate education, um, having the right environment, focusing on the fundamentals. That is not just marketing. That's where you have to have a really well-oiled um, collaborative leadership team. And I think the success at Pearl, as much as I'm super proud of what we have done, um, it's really been because we have a holistic commitment to our brand position and to bringing that to life. That's why we're winning. You're very good at giving credit to your colleagues and your team. I'll say that. Um, how did you think about managing up ahead of this shift? Because if you're in this mode of being kind of transactional mm-hmm. and offering discounts and everyone else around you is doing it, there's a level of validation in the market as to this is how we do things. Sure. How did you manage up when you wanted to take a step back, give yourself two years, know that it's going to impact the business? And and also, secondary question, how many of these impacts did you foresee? How many corners could you see around? Yeah. Um, so in our case, because anybody who works in a franchise business you're not necessarily just managing up, you're managing to the side because your franchisees are, are funding your marketing effort. It, I was fortunate in the sense of that when I was brought in, um, I was brought in with the expectation to really revitalize Pearl Vision. And the, the mantra of, or I should say the marching orders, really can be articulated best in the very first email I got on my very first day at work from the head of our franchisee advisory council, which is kind of like, Congress, speaker, <laughs> speaker of the House, and the the the, um, the email, and, and I'm not paraphrasing, and it legitimately said this, which you know, which was, "Dear Doug, welcome to Pearl Vision. I hope you suck less than the last person that had your job." <laughs> now you you can this laugh. That sounds awesome. It you know what? It was interesting. I kind of went through all the stages of grief. My first <laughs> reaction was like, "Holy shit! What did I just walk into?" You know, I knew the brand wasn't growing. We were kind of relatively flat in performance, but I didn't realize there was this much disdain um, or dissatisfaction for the work that had been done. On the other hand, it was unbelievably liberating because anytime I got meaningful pushback from the franchise community over the evolutionary work that we were putting forth, 
guys, you asked for this. You don't want this. That's fine. We can keep going exactly the way you're going to go. And I can tell you within five years, you're not going to be happy. But for us, it was really about listening to then lead. So I did the, you know, the chicken dinner tour. I went to every DMA. I talked to as many of our franchisees as possible. I actually also talked to what I call the ex-girlfriends. You know, if you ever want to learn a lot about yourself, talk to your exes, okay? Because they'll give you like the hard and fast truth as to what you really are as a person. It's the same thing in business. I talked to consumers that had fired us. Mm. I talked to franchisees that were disenfranchised to find out where we had let them down. And it was through a mixture of quant and qual research that we really came up with our future state. And even within the future state, we were, you know, I think transparency is key. You know, one of the things I, I pride myself on um, is, is being an authentic, direct, genuine, ethical person. And I stood up in front of our franchisees at our franchisee conference in February of 2013 and said, guys, this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be a one-year journey. This is a five-year plan. And we're now in year, coming on year eight in our five-year plan. And that's not because we haven't been successful. It's because marketing has to be consistently consistent. We have had positive impact on our business. We have also forced change in our category. We now need to react to that change, to that competitive pressure by maintaining our course, not putting our head in the sand and beating our chest and saying, we're so great, don't worry what they're doing, but by being really smart in reinforcing why we are different and not trying to find the shiny penny because there is no shiny penny. What we did at Pearl was not because we had one great idea. We had one amazing brand positioning statement, which was the hardest sentence I've ever written in my career. It took me six months to come up with the brand positioning. And that's actually on the short end if you talk to marketers about how long it mm -hmm. takes. But since we came up with that brand positioning, it's been seven and a half years really bringing that to life, earning back the trust, reestablishing this brand as the premier optical franchise, and, and each and every day trying to live up to the ideals. Unfortunately, Brands cannot control their brand narrative any longer. Mm. Um, yeah. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the viscosity that comes from dissatisfied experiences is huge. It could really stop the momentum of a business. And so we have actually had to build an entire reputation management platform in order to help manage our narrative. Because look, you know, if we're doing 30 to 50 eye exams a week in, in an average eye care center, there's going to be people that don't have an amazing experience. That's a reality. And that's not because we're not good at what we do. It's just very subjective. Um, so we've got to manage that because you're as good as your reputation. And the single most important marketing tool that we know exists is not anything that I do. It's word of mouth. Still to this day, despite all the bells and whistles, it's all about your reputation. So it's a feedback loop, but what, how do you handle actually not having uh, a good reputation outside of, let's say that you're, you're thinking higher level, how you can work over the course of many years to change it, but what yeah. do you do when there's issues that are clear within a region, within sure. a certain group of people? So first thing is we have an amazing operations team. We have territory franchise directors that work with each and every one of our eye care centers to ensure that they not only have a robust business plan, but... Um, are very well aware of the need to manage their narrative. And they complement the field marketing team that is part of my group. But it starts with, most importantly, creating a human connection. 
when somebody is dissatisfied with a brand, they don't care that that brand is franchised. They don't care that we're a national brand. They're angry at that location. And so the first thing we have to do is respond. You know, I'm really sorry to hear that you've had an issue. Let, let me get in touch with you. Is that always the response? Always. 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 It's always a step back because you can't lead unless you listen. Mm. And you're certainly not going to want to want to fight the battle online. It's like having an email war with a colleague. At some point, you got to just stop the insanity and pick up the phone or have a face-to-face conversation. We expect our locations to acknowledge that a consumer is dissatisfied or in our case, a patient is dissatisfied. That doesn't mean accept the fact that they did anything wrong. That just means recognizing that as a brand of people caring for people, you have to create an emotional connection first. You then go and you want to seek to understand because what ends up happening a lot of times is there's a misunderstanding. Every once in a while, you have something that was like just crazy. But most of the time, it's a misunderstanding. And if you simply acknowledge that, you know what, you're right, we probably could have done a better job, but I hope overall you're happy with your experience, with your eyewear, that you'll give us a, a, shoot, a shot, you know, shot again, you end up being able to take an adversary and turn them into an advocate. And that's where the power of social media and the feedback loop is, is at its most powerful, is when you can have a consumer say, thank you for taking the time. You know, I still don't agree, but I really appreciate you acknowledging that something didn't go right from my perspective. That allows consumers to recognize that this brand has heart and has soul. And again, if you go back to your earlier question about the evolution of retail and what is going on, soulless retail is dead. Or dying fast. Dying very fast. You have to have a soul. You have to care. And that's, again, I think why we're winning. So before I jump into the actual content piece of this, which is probably where we talk most about soul in your case, let me ask you one final question. Mm -hmm. Do you think Amazon has soul in the way they do business? And if so, then then where do you see it? And if not, then where does that lead them? So um, I think Amazon uniquely has soul in certain places. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so I'm, I'm probably among the majority even in this room in terms of being an Amazon Prime user. I'm, okay. I'm I, one too. I bought into mm-hmm. the False narrative that you actually save money, which we all know you don't. Um, <laughs> but you get a lot of free TV shows. You get a lot of free TV shows. <laughs> so that's a great example of where they have soul. What they're doing is they're providing you value. They recognize that the value equation is about experience divided by price. And that's, what, that's my personal value equation. Yep. You can charge a premium price if you deliver an even more, if your numerator, which is experience, is significantly bigger than your denominator, price becomes immaterial. Everybody, whether you're making 50000 or $5 million a year, wants value. Mm-hmm. Value equals experience over price. They have soul in that they recognize that they have to create an ecosystem. Also, if you've ever had a problem on Amazon Prime, it's one of the easiest places to resolve. They'll involve themselves in the relationship with the vendor. If you're not happy, they'll step in. I had a friend they'll of mine- They'll give you your money back. They'll give you your money back. I had a friend of mine send me something- and I opened the box and there were two other things in there and they were like, just keep it. I mean, it was like socks, but they were like, just keep it. Um, because they recognize that why should I make you have to send it back yeah. for our problem? Um, they are very, very good at finding those small moments that allow you to kind of balance out some of the nonsense. But you know what's funny is that the vast majority of the Amazon business is actually supported financially by AWS. 
because in many ways they haven't truly figured out the unit economics of a lot of the things that make them as successful and soulful. Well, Amazon, if you if you boil down Amazon, Amazon is one of the best things to happen to small business in the last 50 years. Mm. You know, if you think about it, if you were a small business, e-commerce, say what? Yeah, yeah. You know, Amazon's small business sort of support, I don't think gets enough love. If I was the yeah. chief marketing officer for Amazon, I would be reinforcing the fact that what we do is we enable small businesses to connect with business with people all over the world, connect with neighbors all over the world because they do. And they make then, a lot of money doing it. And then we it. make our own products. They make their own, you know, <laughs> it, it's. But yes, you, I mean, I get it. As a CMO, that would be a great story to tell. It's a great story. I mean, I don't know if if Bezos had that vision when he created the business, but I think it's certainly evolved into an enabler to connect. Yeah. You know, similar to what Facebook did 10 years ago. Yeah. In terms of enabling people to connect with each other. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how it all evolves and how much of it gets breaking apart due to all sorts of legislation changes around data. But we'll see. Privacy TBD. is really important. Um, I think you have to recognize that you give up a degree of privacy when you shop in a virtual way, just like you give up a degree of privacy and anonymity when you register for TSA PreCheck or Clear. I wouldn't give up my Clear membership at all. Yeah, same. You've been to LaGuardia. It's awful. Love it. I can get through LaGuardia Airport in about four minutes. Yep. You want my fingerprints? Awesome. <laughs> Fabulous. Not a problem. I'm not doing anything sketchy. You want to know yeah. my background? Have at it. You want yeah. a blood sample? You can have that too. As really? long as I don't wow, have to wait online and take off my shoes, I'm good. <laughs> Would I'm you good. rather give a blood sample than take off your shoes every time? Um, have you seen the floors at LaGuardia? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Blood sample, um, swab, what hair follicles, and you name it. To not have to... Like go Take barefoot and have gross. Oh yeah, absolutely for sure. <laughs> TSA is apparently pretty good too. <laughs> uh, pre-check is pretty good. Yeah, but the problem is, is that they opened it up to everybody. Well, clear is becoming that way too. I'm Unfortunately, hoping, this I'm is hoping the they issue. clamp down. I actually think again, if if the folks at Clear are listening, raise your prices to make it an exclusive club because that's a great idea. Clear is um, an unbelievable value asset for the business traveler. I, I mean, agree. How many times have we got stuck in traffic and you make a, f I can get through LaGuardia, you know, security, even on a busy morning, probably in like 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Same here. Um, Newark doesn't have it yet. So I don't even, I don't even fly out of there. Newark's got bigger problems than Clear. <laughs> well, let's hope Clear's not VC backed because no, if they uh, are, then. <laughs> please no. Please no. We'll be right back to pros and content after this brief message. Pros and Content Podcast is brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform for brands. For a demo, and to learn how to best plan, measure, optimize, and benchmark your content marketing strategy, visit us at notch.com. K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. Notch. It's all you'll ever need. Okay, so let's talk about content. Yep. Um, I already told you that you made me cry. Um, there's something in there about, you know, almost everyone, well, everyone that I know has a relationship, a deep relationship with um, a grandmother, a grandfather, uh, a mother, a father. And to see that um, and, and how you managed to weave that into a story that's about your brand trust, it was really inspiring. How did you come up with that? Um, how long did it take? Who helped you? Tell us everything about so, um, about Ben. <laughs> so Ben and Olivia are, are are the first two executions in our small moments campaign. And you know what's interesting is that that campaign arose not because we were doing something wrong, but because we started to do something right and we 
got excited about the opportunity to put fuel on the fire. So when we developed the brand positioning, one of the first things that I was enabled to do was to bring on a new agency, a new creative and strategy agency to help us. And we've got an amazing partner um, in Chicago who helps us out. They've been with, been with us as long as I've been with the company. And um, what we started to see was the business move, but we weren't happy with how fast it was moving. And we recognized that something was missing. We had done all of this research about what did quality of care really mean? And in the case of eyewear, we had we did some quant research and talked to a bunch of people. And what it said originally was that doctor quality in particular really started with um, a doctor that goes over and above just correcting my vision, but checks the overall health and wellness of my eyes. And so we did a campaign that really reinforced our heritage and eye care and that the doctors at Pearl Vision conduct eye exams that can even detect things like diabetes. Started to move the needle. When it didn't move the needle as fast as we wanted to, we actually went back to the research and we recognized that, again, going back to people make emotional decisions before they make rational choices, that it was the attention, it was the time, it was seeking to understand and form that personal relationship with the doctor that was actually even more powerful than the diplomas or the technology. And it was sort of magnified by, um, we have a great strategist on our business, and she brought to us a piece of video from Brene Brown. Mm. And Brene talks a lot about how trust is like marbles in a jar, and that every time you trust somebody and they reward that trust, you put a marble in the jar. And in this case, if you have a fight with somebody that's a friend, do you dump all the marbles out? No, you maybe pull a couple out, but the reality is, is you still trust them. We recognized through that and by looking at our own data that trust really was formed between our doctors and our patients through a series of small moments mm. through the exam and retail cycle. And so the story of Ben is really a small moment. The story of Olivia is really a small moment. And it's all about making a consumer feel something. Because our category, as much as eyewear is exciting, it's void of real emotion right now. And that's where I'm excited about some of the noise that some of these smaller D2C players are bringing in because people are paying attention to eyewear. Hmm. So now we have an opportunity to lean even harder because we are one of the few brands being that we were founded by a doctor that has the street cred to be able to talk about quality of care. And that's really where we've leaned. And so this afternoon, I'm going to hopefully hear some great concepts for the next iteration of the Small Moments campaign. So I'm excited. So it's about um, it's about quality of care and it's about having the expertise and the credibility. But it's also about creating that emotional connection. How did you come up with the idea of small moments outside of the the kind of marbles and and trust piece? How did you know that by by using that particular creative, it would it would lead to the intended result? So, um, or when did you know that you succeeded? When did we know? We knew when we started to test it before it went live. So we, as human beings don't recognize that 90% of communication is nonverbal. And yet when people test creative, they tend to test it purely quantitatively. And so we actually did some system one testing where we tested face trace and emotional testing and it allowed us to see reactions. And then that scored and measured. And we started to see people just lose it, you know, like you did, you know, just lose it emotionally, but not, in I was also absence. resisting it. I couldn't resist it. <laughs> you know, when you've, when you've been able to connect with somebody emotionally 
and maintain the brand presence in that emotional conversation. Like we've all seen really emotional ads and we're like, who was that from again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't separate the story of Ben or the story of Olivia from right. Pearl. It doesn't, it's nonsensical. Right. Because the the ending of the commercial is always about an eye care moment. Yeah. You know, Olivia, it was about getting a great pair of glasses that were inspired by one of her heroes, Billie Jean King. In Ben's case, it was the opportunity to wear his grand his dear departed grandfather's glasses and not have to strain his eyes. So we're innate in that narrative. And that's really why we've got an amazing creative team in Chicago, an amazing creative team. Um, you know, Cleo's, the Effie's, the Brand Week stuff, all of the recognition that has come is really predicated on understanding one simple truth. People make emotional decisions before they make rational choices. Somebody has to emotionally decide that our brand is who they're going to trust before they schedule an exam on Thursday. We leaned very heavily into making people feel something about our brand and what we do. Not just pure emotion, but emotion tied to our reason for being. That enables us to convert. So I don't know uh, if I've ever shared this with you, but the system one, system two of the brain um that was that was kind of the genesis of why I wanted to start Notch. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, I was talking a lot to. I'm I'm a data nerd, and I was talking a lot to different creatives and marketers about um, what it takes to really understand impact and effectiveness. And almost always, the word emotion came up. Mm-hmm. And yet, every single way, not just for testing, but for measuring stuff that's live, was always based on quantitative. Um, it was never based on trying to assess that nonverbal feedback, that emotion in the moment. And so we spent about two years figuring out how do we build something online that keeps people in system one as they continue to share how they feel in a kind of um, intimate setting, which is content, but also making them feel safe in the way they're sharing it. So anyway, I, I have a lot of passion for this idea of combining emotion with um, all the other factors that really matter. It's interesting because you can go... If you don't have the conversation the right way, you can go very much and very quickly into the touchy-feely area, which nobody really wants to spend time with when you're talking about spending 40 or $50 million to make people touchy-feel. The connection point has to be, in my opinion, kind of what I've laid out, which is that decision comes emotionally. Unless, again, you are your product or your service is so incredibly unique where it's all about ration versus emotion, unless you are truly, truly different, you better connect with somebody emotionally because there is way too much out there to distract them. Well, you mentioned that Apple was a rational choice because it's such a unique product, but I actually think they've done a great job of creating emotion around it. And, and I don't have. know if it is still a unique product. No, you know? I agree with you. I, I think now it is much more of an emotional decision than a rational choice. And I, I actually don't know if any product can truly ride that wave for too long. Not in today's world. Um, you know, it, it depends on how far ahead you are. You know, when the iPhone came out, it was all emotion. Sure. It was so unbelievably yeah. cool. And you know, if you were to put the phone, the iPhone XR 11 against the Samsung Galaxy, some people actually think the competition is better. Mm. Okay. But it's the fact that I'm so emotionally tied to the Apple ecosystem. Um, it's so easy. It's so simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I stay with it. So I think you're, you're spot on. I think um, one of the interesting categories where they use emotion initially to connect with consumers, where I'm always wondering why, is in drug. In the drug category, huh. you know, if if you have a cure, if you have a pill that cures something, that treats something, oh right, yeah. Why would you need to get into such an emotional story? It's listen, 
If you have X, I have Y. Cure Y with X. Done story. Until you start seeing that competitor list come out. That's and the thing. then everyone's saying the same thing. Correct. Correct. That's why they need to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's why we always laugh at the, you know, sexual dysfunction ads. They all do the same <laughs> thing. And they're just so over the top in yeah. terms of emotion. Um, well, I think the the insight across the board is that this notion of transactional marketing just cannot be the the equilibrium anymore. And that's why I asked the question on performance versus brand, because I think across the board, if you overly index on performance, you just see the CAC exponentially go up. There's absolutely no other way to to think about it, because without that loyalty, without that emotion. Right. Why would you choose one versus another? You know, it is much harder to attract a new consumer than to keep an existing one. And yet more time is spent on attracting. Attract- I mean, think about the cable business, you know, Optimum, Fios. If they're listening, I'm sorry, but you guys suck. Okay. You make it so much easier for people to want to sign up for your service than treating people with respect that have your service. Why should I pay 3X because I've been with you for seven years? It's, it's nonsensical. It's nonsensical. It actually creates anger and resentment. I'm like so close to cutting the cord. I'm like, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised so you haven't. I'm, I'm nervous because I, we're, my family is a very big local television, live uh. television family. Um, and so plus the entire house has been wired. So it, it's like, okay, what happens if we have to do it? But if you think about it, that business model is completely broken completely broken because they spend more time trying to get you to be a user than worrying about whether they're going to keep you. Yeah. And I think every business has opportunities with retention. Yeah. Some people go over the top of it, but the reality is, is that it is much harder to get somebody new than to keep somebody. It's such a race for growth though. And I think whenever businesses talk about success, right. they talk about how many percentage they were up from sure. last year. Comp growth. Yeah. But that's Okay. You can, you can have comp growth a number of different ways. There's no better way to have comp growth than an existing customer mm. who loves you, to, who, who advocates and wants to come back. Um, That's true. Versus giving tons of margin away in order to bring somebody in only to frustrate them a year and a half later or two years later, and they end up turning into an adversary. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Okay, so we have two other quick categories Go I want to it. touch on. One, I want to get into the nuts and bolts a little bit of this content that you created. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about, you know, you, you had the test, it was all working. Yep. What happened next? Where did you put it? How much so, of it was owned versus paid, et cetera? So um, Ben was an interesting story because Ben was launched before Facebook got crushed with all of their data transparency models. So we actually launched Ben on Super Bowl Sunday. Um, and we did a lot of seeding with influencers of the campaign and it took off. I mean, it took off like crazy. Um, when we launched on Super Bowl Sunday, we actually launched it hundred percent online. We launched it on Hulu exclusively. Um, and it started to gain traction. HuffPost covered it as like one of the best ads they've ever seen. Um, we had a couple sites like Facebook groups where people got really behind it. I think we had one Facebook group where we had a million and a half views in like 60 days. And so Ben started to become part of the nomenclature within what are really, really cool ads. Fast forward a year and a half later when we launched Olivia, Olivia, the transparency model was dialed up. So we couldn't necessarily do the kind of influencer seeding that we had done with Ben and expect the same results. And so in that case, the, the spot involved Billie Jean King as sort of the icon that Olivia looks up to. 
And so by bringing her on board, we were able to use her relationships with her fans as a way to spread the gospel of Olivia. Um, And then built on that with really just consumer engagement, you know, asking consumers, who do you look up to? Do you have a story about how glasses have changed your life? Um, How eyewear has changed your life? You know, Billy's story, Billy was a good tennis player and her fifth grade teacher noticed that she was having trouble seeing the board. She got glasses and all of a sudden she could see the little yellow ball coming over the net a millisecond or two milliseconds earlier. She became a rock star. You know, Billy is the first one to tell you she would not have been a professional tennis player at the level that she is now without corrective eyewear. Um, that's, that's crazy. Awesome. It's an amazing story it's, to tell. Um, and we've gotten very fortunate. We've become very fortunate. Billy is a wonderful, wonderful person to work with. And she believed in our commitment mm-hmm. to kids and to eye care in general. And so our content was purposeful. We had an entire, we filmed a lot of extra content with her that we strictly released on social. You know, Billy's eyewear story on social. It's like a minute and a half video that we did on paid Facebook and optimized on Instagram. Um, our YouTube channel is mainly a housing point for material. So we send a lot of people to our YouTube channel to watch these things. But the the content platform was really about taking this idea and accelerating it forward. So a lot of marketers are now creating and hosting a lot of their content on their own and operated, trying mm-hmm. to drive people back to it. Mm-hmm. You've talked a lot about going out and putting things out in social, natively social. Yep. How do you think about bringing people back? Is that even important? Does a lot of the conversion happen online? And if so, is that an important thing to measure? So um, when I joined the company, less than 5% of all of our exams scheduled were online. We had a very basic online exam scheduling platform. Now, uh, close to 25% of all of our exams are scheduled online. And that's grown double digits per annum for the last five years. So for us, we want our patients to schedule online because we want them to be able to look at their phones and figure out what time slots they have available. We have built an incredibly robust online exam scheduling portal. Every single eye care center that has our name on it has a dedicated microsite where a consumer can go and find out who their doctors are and what time that doctor has available and schedule immediately through their phone, through their iPad, through their desktop. Your question about content, native content, it all gets into that brand consideration mode. Lower funnel is incrementally helped when you have strong upper funnel. Because if somebody decides, okay, after seeing all the advertising from everybody in our category, many of which are 2X or 3X our size, that they finally need to get an eye exam and they put in eye doctor near me and on page one, they have four or five brands, that is when all that upper funnel stuff really pays off. So you can't really separate it. Um, We look at upper funnel and lower funnel as a consistent funnel. We try not to bifurcate the analysis because one without the other is silly. You know, we've seen brands in our category eliminate upper funnel and focus all on aggregation. And guess what? We all have the same technology in terms of- race to the bottom. To race to the bottom. To race to the bottom. So do you try to draw a straight line between the upper funnel and the lower funnel? Or is there the kind of wasteland of mid funnel that can be measured? Um, We've got a couple lefts and rights in, in middle funnel. And some of that is intentional where we want to educate a little bit more about. And I think kids is really one of those areas where- You know, we do a lot in pediatricians' offices in terms of educating moms and kids about the importance of eye care. We have a great animated series that we created called The Eye Squad, which we launched in 2016, which profiles the the superheroes Iris and Lash fighting Professor Blur. It's really nice. Um, But for that, we really want to educate moms, you know, that one out of every four school-age kids and 
40% of Hispanic school age kids actually have an undiagnosed vision issue. Mm. So helping mom understand that eye care is not confined to just people in their 30s and 40s, but really starting at age five, kids should get an annual eye exam. Mm. So that's where you get into some of the middle funnel stuff. Also, some of the video that we do online, we do as kind of mid funnel, where it's really about views, not necessarily clicks. Because again, we look at it as a, we look at it as a um, e- entire ecosystem. We have to be very careful that we don't spend too much upper, too much middle, because bottom line is we got to deliver the results. Totally. So as long as exam growth is strong, we have more flexibility to play. Do you have an idea of how long it takes for, for someone to go from, ooh, I've heard about Pearl Vision, or, or, or I've now seen Pearl Vision in a different way, all the way to conversion? Um, not really. I can tell you in our category, it's on average anywhere, if you're lucky, a year to could be as high as three to stimulate that epiphany moment that I need to get my eyes checked because education on our category is still pretty low. Um, For Pearl, most of the epiphany moments to transaction is within seven days. Hmm. So people recognize they need to get an eye exam. They probably do that on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They want to schedule an exam for the weekend. They usually schedule within a week, two max. And then, you know, those that need eyewear get it. That makes sense. Final category of questions. Um, the folks listening are most likely content marketers and then also marketers who are junior and kind of halfway through their careers. And I always ask one, why did you take the job that you took, mm. um, especially knowing the type of challenges that you'll face? Um, how should people think about taking on challenges like that? Because it was definitely a big challenge. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what advice do you have, especially if someone's in the content realm? Do you think it's a it's an important function in the larger marketing skill set, do you think it leads to a more senior marketing role? So this isn't where we give away tickets to a concert. Right? <laughs> um, every time I do a podcast, I'm like, eh, now dial, dial, call number really? 100, dial in for your favorite concert ticket. Oh my God. Um, That's actually really good. I need to learn from you, that, that intonation. <laughs> I think, so it's, let me break down the question. Um, why I took this role. My entire career has always been a quest to understand not just the what, but the why, and to influence the how. Um, I started out at the end of the communications train in media as an agency guy and worked my way through the agency world to eventually starting and leading a division of one of the largest agencies um, out there, and then made the jump to the dark side as a client. The opportunity to make a difference is hardwired in me, Um, and not just because my title is X, but of who I am as a person. Um, Walking into a room and knowing that I can have influence in a trajectory of a business and a brand is, it's a rush. I mean, I I love it. Um, Why I took this job was because I was told that I had the opportunity to make a difference. You know, walking into a brand that isn't broken, or that isn't, I would say, 100% working flawlessly is intimidating. But it's also an incredibly exciting license to think differently. And that's another thing. It's, it's, I try to pride myself on getting into a business and understanding the ecosystem enough that hopefully I'm finding opportunities that others haven't. You know, the folks that were working in marketing on this business were not bad at their job. Um, the ecosystem, I think, had just dragged them into a place where they were focusing, you know, on the minute, on the moment, not the journey. And coming in fresh, 
having the opportunity to really look at things with a fresh set of eyes, given some of my experiences in beauty and fashion and the agency world, um, opened some opportunities up. And then the, the leadership team that we have built, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with, just have a, a relentless passion and commitment to flawless execution. And I like to say that we should celebrate progress, not perfection. We're not perfect at all. There's a lot of opportunities left. But what I would say to your listeners, especially those that are in the early part of their career, don't make a jump for $5,000, okay? Mm. Or even $10,000. That's basically like- A two, month or a year? Uh, like a year. <laughs> That's like two Starbucks. Don't do it. Make a difference. Make a jump for the opportunity to make a difference. And yes, you want the financial package to come with it. But the more opportunity you have to um, have the authority to make decisions and with that, the accountability for those decisions, that's where you become invaluable. Mm -hmm. Everybody is replaceable. But your value add as a member of a team drives up incrementally um, when you have that opportunity to make a difference. So that really should be driving. It's when, when I teach in schools or lecture in colleges, I get asked the question, you know, what should I be looking for in my career? Look for an opportunity to learn, to listen, and to make a difference. And that track record will then get you more than $10,000. Hopefully. Hopefully. You know, you, you, do, you do a lot of good work. Sometimes you have successful failures. You know, we have them. We don't like to talk about them. But, you know, if you do it once, it's a learning experience. If you do it twice, it's a mistake. If you do it a third time, then you know what? We have to have a meaningful conversation. I love the learning experiences. We try to mitigate the mistakes. And unfortunately, sometimes you have those meaningful conversations where something's not going to work out. Mm. I like that framework. What about content? Tell us a bit about that. Um, content is an opportunity to show, not tell what you do and why you do what you do um, as a brand, as a business. Content should be reflective of your brand positioning. It should not in any way, shape, or form be focused on anything outside of who you are relative to the voice or perspective that you have on said topic. So brands that just simply expound their point of view for the sake of their point of view is silly. Because like, frankly, nobody cared that what Pepsi did a couple of years ago with the Kylie Jenner spot. Um, why that was an abject, you know, abject failure was because they decided to voice a perspective. Who cares what Pepsi thinks? Okay. But brands that can weigh in on topics that are meaningful and show how their brand fits into their lifestyle. And it's funny, there's an iPad spot right now out for Apple that is unbelievable. I don't know if you've seen it. If you want to no, cry, the one with the grandfather and they go visit the grandfather's house and mom and dad give the two young girls an iPad just to keep them busy. And you find out in the story that they're visiting the grandfather after the grandmother has passed away. And at the end of the spot, they give the iPad to the grandfather, they wrap it up and they say play. And it's a movie that they cut iMovie using pictures and photos. And it's unbelievably touching. But at the core of it is this product and this brand. And it's going to do gangbusters for them. Mm. You know, on the other hand, you look at what's going on with Peloton right now and you have to just giggle. So, um, look, <laughs> if you, if you, you don't try, if you don't try, you're definitely not gonna, um, push the envelope and sometimes you push it in the right way sometimes you push it in the is wrong there way. such a thing as bad publicity by yes. the way okay absolutely yeah absolutely. very polarizing response i've asked this many times i think there is absolutely such a thing as bad publicity because as opposed to playing offense you now have to play defense mm. 
playing different defense means you're on your heels. You're reacting to somebody else's narrative. You're not controlling your own. And again, brands have a very hard time controlling their narrative in today's day and age. Playing defense is not always a good thing. So it sounds like being in content is this incredible opportunity to control the narrative and work towards building that trust. It's an opportunity to influence the narrative tremendously. Mm. It's to remind consumers why you are different. It's a way to dimensionalize yourself, to humanize your brand, to have a little fun at the same time, um, and to show some humility. When you create content- And humanity. Yeah. I mean, when you create content, you are humbly serving up something to somebody and saying, I hope you like it. Mm. And sometimes you're going to get great response. Sometimes they're going to tell you you suck. <laughs> the good news is that if you do it in a way that's measured and you don't put all your money behind one piece of content and you have a balanced approach to upper funnel, middle funnel, and lower funnel, you can afford to have some flops because you learn from them. And again, those are learning experiences. If you do it a couple of times, then you really have to kind of step back and say, what is the ethos of our brand and is our strategy really translatable in content? But the reality is, is that um, brands and people should not stray away from trying things on content, provided they can always ask themselves, what does that content have to do with our brand? Mm. Why would somebody care that we as a brand are getting behind this? And the, the more you struggle with that answer, the less sure you probably are about the content you're putting out. Well, I feel like I just had an hour with the wisest marketer I've ever met. <laughs> Thank you so much for, Thanks. This for the work you do and, and for the inspiration you provide to others. And thank you for sharing all this amazing advice with, with us and our listeners. Now everybody dial in to that 1-800 <laughs> number they're going to give you in a second. To win those There's no tickets. 1-800 number. <laughs> Seriously, we do this because we believe in content as much as you do. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was such a fun conversation. I felt like we could keep talking for hours. Um, I'm really interested in the disruption that the retail space is facing. And what I thought was refreshing about that perspective, especially because if we, we talked a lot about Amazon, is this idea that Amazon hasn't killed small business and Amazon hasn't killed retail. Amazon has killed shitty retail. I thought that was a really fun statement. Um, I think the other piece that was interesting is how he constantly phrased almost every negative uh, or, or previously perceived negative disruption of the retail space as a positive opportunity for retail to redefine itself. And I loved what he said about the fact that um, retail will continue surviving if we can find that purpose and experience and if we can deliver a tremendous customer experience across the board. So I really, really like that. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And for any feedback that you have, please email me at anda at prosandcontent.co. I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to nominate other speakers for us to feature. And if you want to hear more amazing content about the pros and cons of making content or being a better storyteller in today's world, please head to prosandcontent.co for more episodes. The best thing you could do for us is to rate, review, and share the series so we can grow the community and the much-needed conversation around the purpose and importance of brand storytelling. See you next time on Pros and Content.